The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. It seems that sharing some poetry here every Friday and going into the weekend is a good idea, and I'll keep doing it as long as listeners and readers on Substack respond well to it. And right away, I'm going to try something different from what I did last week. For the past few years, I've been working on a long book called The Great Year, And what happens in the great year is we are to imagine ourselves perhaps a hundred years into the future when basically the world has almost been entirely emptied thanks to environmental disaster and war and anything else you can think of. And what I imagine is a handful of people uh, traveling from Eastern Europe uh, to Iceland for reasons that you'll have to read the book Uh, many years from now, whenever it comes out, to figure out why. But what they do along the way on their journey is they tell the stories from religion and mythology. It's sort of a post-apocalyptic Canterbury Tales, a sort of uh, adventure story that is also a compendium of all the myths and the bits of scripture that I like. And But what they also do is they talk about uh, their own lives, and they make poetry about their own journey. And I wanted to share a few of those poems here because they are so bound up with the context of where they sit in the story that it will be hard to get them published on their own otherwise. And barring that, uh, that means that they won't reach anybody for many years to come. And so I thought I could read a few of those here and just give the proper introductions to them. The first poem is called The Autumn Village. And again, if you imagine yourself wandering around a sort of emptied world, in this case, an emptied Europe, and uh, you imagine it basically being uh, a handful of episodes of Life After People, if you remember that show, and suddenly you hear rumors about a place where not necessarily things are going on as they used to, but just a place where there is still some sense of contentedness and happiness and even beauty. Uh, How would you feel about that? The characters in, in my story are highly suspicious of this place and they don't believe that it exists. But this is the poem that I wrote Uh, about the people who are hopeful and do believe that it exists and they hope to get there someday. This is a poem called The Autumn Village and it says this. There is a place just inland from the sea 
whose lulling wind still smells of salt and sun, and whose ground still drinks water, and sleeps wet and dark, and loosens under every tool, and gives potatoes, peas, and cabbage, leeks and lettuce, watercress and carrots, all for the filled soup pot, the fall table, radishes and parsnips and Brussels sprouts, steam and broth and bowl smelling of garlic, and looking like every dirty color, brown-green, brown-orange, dirty purple and orange-red. There's a place that smells of manure and compost and where milk jars are corked with paper, a place of wheels and carts and wooden toys, corn dolls and carved gourds and dressed-up branches played with and cared for and left in the fields for passing spirits to pick up and love. There are apples in the cool evenings, and pomegranates that lay burst and glittering in the yellow light and the lazy wind, while pears sit cherished in the hands of everyone exhausted from the harvest, pears and plums and round yellow quince with a pinched face, the land and sky still giving, if erratic, still moody but still generous, overflowing, still given to extremes of heat and cold, drought or flood or just strangeness, the strangeness of harshness and ease, of comings and goings, how it marks and celebrates and meditates, the frozen pond and the song of the spring thaw, the winter cold and the early-born child, or falling in love with someone suddenly, someone you've seen every day of your life, but not this way, and now all of it is new, the earth and air and tree and every lake. There is a place where there are still people, and they dance and love before the bonfire, and children still spill into the wide world, and they're taught about the floor and the byre, the stove and the door, the earth and the road, the sea and the sky and the smell of rain, and they teach the stories, they teach the songs, and they are still hopeful for the future, and they are not afraid And I don't think I'll be giving anything away to say that whenever the book does come out, you will find out that they do make it to this village. I haven't written that part yet, but I have a pretty good idea of what will go on there. The main character of the poem is a man named Smith, who is a metalsmith, or who became one uh, in the course of his life. And he is someone who has been alive since, oh, about 12,000 BCE. And so uh, he is my great excuse to uh, give an awful lot of experience too. He's someone who can say an awful lot and suggest an awful lot and remember a great deal. And one of the things he does remember in one of the chapters or in one of the books that is concerned with the mythologies and the tales and the stories 
of the founding of cities, um, one of the things he is able to do is respond to the cynicism or the formulaic nature of how the stories of how cities are founded are told. And one of the stories he tells is of being in Iceland uh, during its settlement. And this is just called, I was in Iceland centuries ago. I was in Iceland centuries ago and helped new settlers there explore the land. Between the shore and the mountain were great marshlands where I disappeared for weeks, or I went south with them to hunt seal, fish, and find the edges of the old forests. There were lava fields and there were rivers we followed back to the mountains or out to the sea. We named the peninsula and we named the marshland and the lagoons. We named the bay, the district, the farmsteads. And by the second spring, new families were arriving and the land was filling with stories, stories of swans by the shore and ducks in the bay, stories of long nights and the names given to the seasons and winds, where the rivers crossed or where natural boundaries occurred land was given to a man and his family. Hayfield walls were put up and sheds for the animals and a timber hall walled with turf and stone. There were benches, fires and storage barrels. My home was in the smithy kept separate from animal and family as always. There were nights, there were days, there were seasons, and the ideas only came later. The ones who did it, they were too busy for philosophy, for explanation, for saying anything superhuman or world historical was going on. They were curious and they were hungry. They had families, they wanted to survive. They wanted a modest hall to fill with smoke, to sleep and rise and know their animals. That's the solitude of founding the joy, precariously accumulated, leaving the forest to pause and to see, in the valley and between the rivers, evening smoke lazy from a distant hall. And it's very interesting to me, uh, it's always a surprise, where details where autobiography enters into these poems that are either drawn from myth or they're about the end of the world and it's always fun to see where details from my own life end up and it so happens that one of the most vivid memories i have from the summer of 2020 our covid our first covid summer is that my wife and daughter and i would uh, go on walks around the circle in our neighborhood. And at the time I was suffering from, uh, thankfully not COVID, but uh, a pinched nerve that made it very hard for me to walk. And so many times uh, my wife and daughter would uh, get up ahead of me and then they would uh, wait for me and my daughter would be gathering stones there uh, as she waited for me, stones from the side of the road. 
And it so happens that Smith, the main character in The Great Year, uh, has that attribute, uh, shares that attribute of many Smiths from mythology. That is, he has um, a club foot and a bad leg, and it is very hard for him to walk. And so at the end of the third book of The Great Year, when he suddenly realizes that he has been alone for uh, so very long, and that he now has two companions, a woman and a little girl, who will go on this journey with him. They will go on this journey together uh, from Eastern Europe to Iceland. And he suddenly realizes with uh, great affection and great emotion what this means to him, uh, someone who has been solitary for so long. And so with that prologue in mind, you will see just how my own bad leg and my daughter gathering rocks ends up uh, filling out one of my favorite poems from the great year so far. And this is Smith uh, heading off with his new companions, thinking about the past and thinking about the future. This is called Smith Looks Up the Long Road. I fell from the Anatolian sky and lived a second life in the middle sea. I've hobbled down the shore and up the peak. I've hewn a home out of stones with these hands. And all of these years have been deathless for me as I watched everyone, and now the world, die. All that I felt affection for, every art, every thought, all that was new, I've watched disappear beyond mind and heart, everything eventually, in the ground. But here is a last place to go, across, across the dead land, and over the boiled water, to the island that the whole world will become, impossible ice, awful ice, thule, where the rusting sun rises and freezes and cracks the firmament to set daily into a ground frozen generations down. A last huge labor I can't see beyond. A final huge walk across the old yard and into a place where I might be allowed to rest this leg and rest this heart at last. And are these two the ones who will take me there? I look ahead toward the road through the trees, where this girl and woman walk together, and where they stop and turn and wait for me, where the girl pockets some stones and old leaves. Is this why I have lasted so long, to know these shapes going forward in a dead wood? Was I swept along from Greece to Ireland? from enormous winters and boiling sand? Was this why I lived to see sail and rail, the wheel and flight and rising up to space? Was this why I lived to see it crumble, monument and metropolis, ocean and forest, lake and sky and plain, mountain and river and road, all cemeteries for every ambition, every love, the landscape a scattered, broken language, 
the three of us will walk through and attempt to preserve in our memories a huge gift with no one but ourselves to receive it. Is this the meaning of my twelve thousand years? I remember those introductions that Jack Kerouac put in front of his novels, where he calls his series of autobiographical books uh, Proust, versions of Proust written on the run rather than written in a cork-lined room, as Proust did his work. And I'd sort of like the audio that I post here to be something like that compared to the formalities of a podcast, to be a little more informal to just see what happens. And of course, the first thing that I come to is poetry. I saw someone asking online the other day, what is poetry? What should poetry do? And the thing that came to mind immediately, the strongest experience of poetry that I've had in the last few months or so, is reading Chaucer in the original. And so my response would be, poetry is joy. Poetry is enjoyment. Poetry is the uh, being swept along by the story or the voice or the music of the words. I haven't had so much fun reading poetry as I did reading uh, Chaucer in a very, very long time. And uh, listeners to the podcast will know that back in November, I began going through all of the poetry in English that I have, all the anthologies, all the collections. And I put together a book of my favorites. And just yesterday, I, uh, I arranged the book chronologically. So I started around the year 2000 and have worked my way backwards. And despite all the poets that I love uh, in the last 400 years or so, uh, despite all the great uh, associations that I have with so many of them, when I came to Shakespeare, it was as if poetry had never been invented before. It was as if the few hundred pages of stuff that I'd collected was the equivalent of child's play. There's also nothing like Shakespeare for sheer joy and energy and inventiveness, even if what he's doing is tragedy. Um, there's still nothing quite like it. Uh, in the world that I know of. And I just wanted to share two speeches from Shakespeare here to get the weekend going and to uh, look forward to Monday, where I will be posting something on Substack about the mythology surrounding children. The first speech here comes from Richard II. And this is Richard II uh, just reminding everybody that perhaps being king is uh, not the best thing in the world. It's tough. It's a tough job. Uh, Richard II says this, Of comfort no man speak. Let's talk of graves, of worms and epitaphs. Make dust our paper, and with rainy eyes write sorrow on the bosom of the earth. 
let's choose executors and talk of wills. And yet not so, for what can we bequeath save our disposed bodies to the ground? Our lands, our lives, and all are Bolingbrooks, and nothing can we call our own but death, and that small model of the barren earth which serves as paste and cover to our bones. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court, and there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, the little scene, to monarchize, be feared and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if this flesh which walls about our life were brass impregnable, and humored thus, comes at the last and with a little pin, bores through his castle wall, and farewell, king, cover your heads, and mock not flesh and blood with solemn reverence, throw away respect, tradition, form, and ceremonious duty, for you have but mistook me all this while. I live with bread like you, feel want, taste grief, need friends. Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? And how's this for informal? Can everyone hear the rain coming down right now as I record this? Um, what can we think of poetry being written today that will sound this fluid and will connect with somebody immediately in the next 400 years? Anything written now that will uh, sound anything quite as natural as this in 400 years? It's being written in 2023. The only other poet that I came across in my collection is Whitman. And of course I mean poetry as something that is speech, something that is heard, something that is meant to be performed. Um, there is no natural voice. Um, all is artifice, and Shakespeare's artifice is the same as Whitman's artifice. Great energy, great joy, great uh, humanity, great empathy, great fullness. Um, it's hard for me to imagine anything being written today that sounds this good 400 years hence. And of course, I admit it with Shakespeare, uh, the experience of an entire play, reading or seeing the production of an entire play, is different and difficult. But if you take the speeches out, if you take the ones that are the best, and just uh, read them out loud, uh, this is what they have the chance to do. They have the chance in the very real way of changing your life. And here is the speech that all of us have heard, at least the first line of, just like to be or not to be. But I don't know how many of us have heard the rest of it. This is the character named Jacques from As You Like It, scene two, act seven. This is all the world's a stage. And again, who the hell else has done anything 
like this. Such a great feeling, again, of life, of lift, of happiness and joy, just seeing uh, what poetry can do here. Uh, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover, sighing like furnace with woeful ballad, made to his mistress's eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly with good cape and lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank and his big manly voice, turning again toward the childish treble pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. And what a remarkable speech that is. Uh, the key to poetry, joy, happiness, um, energy, movement, um, empathy, but also the almost impossible uh, achievement of mixing formality uh, with the vernacular. Nobody does that. Other than Whitman, I would say, nobody does that quite like Shakespeare. So have a good weekend, everybody. Until next time. So we have Walt Whitman saying, the blab of the pave, the tires of carts and slough of boot soles, and talk of the promenaders, the heavy omnibus, the driver with his interrogating thumb, the clank of the shod horses on the granite floor, the impassive stones that receive and return so many echoes. And we could spend the next hour reading excerpts and catalogs of Whitman talking about work, but that is a good way to start. And a good response to that is from Studs Terkel, from the introduction to his book of interviews about people working and talking about their jobs. And he says that this book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. 
It is about ulcers as well as accidents, about shouting matches as well as fistfights, about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is above all or beneath all about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great many of us. And today I wanted to read a few poems about work. And the first of these will sound an awful lot like Studs Terkel, because this poet, Philip Levine, who lived from 1928 to 2015, um, lived in America like Terkel. And Philip Levine lived in Michigan and wrote a great deal about Flint and Detroit and was among the uh, factory working class there for many, many years. And this is Philip Levine's incredible poem called Among Children. It says, I walk among the rows of bowed heads. The children are sleeping through fourth grade so as to be ready for what is ahead. The monumental boredom of junior high and the rush forward tearing their wings, loose and turning their eyes forever inward. These are the children of Flint. Their fathers work at the spark plug factory or truck bottled water in five-gallon sea-blue jugs to the widows of the suburbs. You can see already how their backs have thickened, how their small hands, soiled by pig iron, leap and stutter even in dreams. I would like to sit down among them and read slowly from the book of Job until the windows pale and the teacher rises out of a milky sea of industrial scum, her gowns streaming with light, her foolish words transformed into song. I would like to arm each one with a quiver of arrows so that they might rush like wind there where no battle rages, shouting among the trumpets, ha ha, how dear the gift of laughter in the face of the eight-hour day, the cold winter mornings without coffee and oranges, the long lines of mothers in old coats waiting silently where the gates have closed. Ten years ago, I went among these same children just born and the bright ward of the Sacred Heart and leaned down to hear their breaths delivered that day, burning with joy. There was such wonder in their sleep, such purpose in their eyes, dosed against autumn in the damp heads blurred with the hair of ponds, and not one turned against me or the light. Not one said, I am sick, I am tired, I will go home. Not one complained or drifted alone, unloved, on the hardest day of their lives. Eleven years from now, they will become the men and women of Flint or paradise, the majors of a minor town, and I will be gone into smoke or memory. So I bow to them here and whisper, all I know, all I will ever know. That bring, brings back great memories of summers at factories that I had as well, and the luck that I had that I did not have to stay there. 
This is an incredible poem by a British poet named Elma Mitchell, who lived from 1919 to 2000. This is her poem called Thoughts After Ruskin. And have you ever heard a poem quite like this about women and the work that they have to do? Women reminded him of lilies and roses. Me, they remind rather of blood and soap. Armed with a warm rag, assaulting noses, ears, neck, mouth, and all the secret places. Armed with a sharp knife, cutting up liver, holding hearts to bleed under a running tap, gutting and stuffing, pickling and preserving, scalding, blanching, broiling, pulverizing, all the terrible chemistry of their kitchens. Their distant husbands lean across mahogany and delicately manipulate the market, while safe at home, the tender and the gentle are killing tiny mice, dead to snap by the neck, asphyxiating flies, evicting spiders, scrubbing, scouring aloud, disturbing cupboards, committing things to dustbins, twisting, wringing, wrists red and knuckles white and fingers puckered, pulpy, tepid, steering, screaming cleaners around the snags of furniture, they straighten and haul out sheets from under the incontinent and heavy old, stoop to importunate young, tugging, folding, tucking, zipping, buttoning, spooning in food, encouraging excretion, mopping up vomit, stabbing cloth with needles, contorting wool around their knitting needles creating snug and comfy on their needles. Their huge hands, their everywhere eyes, their voices raised to convey across the hullabaloo, their massive thighs and breasts dispensing comfort, their bloody passages and hairy crannies, their wombs that pocket a man upside down. And when all's over, off with overalls, quickly consulting clocks, they go upstairs, sit and sigh a little, brushing hair, and somehow find in mirrors, colors, odors, their essences of lilies and of roses. And that is better than most poems that you find in anthologies, like the one I found that in. And that deserves to be read and heard a million times over. And so does this poem by Vita Sackville West, who lived from 1892 to 1962, another British poet. And this is her poem called Craftsman. And you'll see how the work of the day eventually becomes the work of poetry as well. And I love this, the way she does this too. All craftsmen share a knowledge they have held reality down, fluttering to a bench, cut wood to their own purposes, compelled the growth of pattern with a patient shuttle, drained acres to a trench. Control is theirs. They have ignored the subtle release of spirit from the jail of shape. They have been concerned with prison, not escape. Pinion the fact and let the rest go free and out of need made inadvertent art. 
all things designed to play a faithful part, build up their plain, particular poetry. Tools have their own integrity. The sneath of scythe curves rightly to the hand. The hammer knows its balance, knife its edge. All tools inevitably planned, stout friends with pledge of service. With their crotchets, too, that masters understand, and proper character, and separate heart, but always to their chosen temper true. So language, smithied at the common fire, grew to its use, as sneath and shank and halt of well-grained wood, nice instruments of craft curve to the simple mold the hands require. Born of the needs of man, the poet, like the artisan, works lonely with his tools, picks up each one, blunt mallet knowing, and the quick thin blade, a plane that travels when the hewing's done, rejects and chooses, scores a fresh faint line, sharpens, intent upon his chiseling, bends lower to examine his design, if it be truly made, and brings perfection to so slight a thing. But in the shadows of his working place, dust-moded, dim, among the chips and lumber of his trade, lifts never his bowed head, a breathing space to look upon the world beyond the sill, the world framed small in distance, for to him the world and all its weight are in his will. Yet in the ecstasy of his rapt mood, there is no retreat his spirit cannot fill, no distant leagues, no present and no past, no essence that his need may not distill. All pressed into his service, but he knows only the immediate care, if that be good. The little focus that his words enclose and the poor joiner working at his wood, knew not the tree from which the planks were taken, knew not the glade from which the trunk was brought, knew not the soil in which the roots were fast, nor by what centuries of gales the boughs were shaken, but holds them all beneath his hands at last. And the last poem comes from Mary Robinson, who lived from 1758 to 1800. And this is as good an example as I know of how poetry written two, three, or more centuries ago can be as vivid as wherever you are sitting now. I'm sitting in the parking lot of a strip mall and I can hear traffic. I can see the moon, I can see Best Buy, and a wine store, and a Target, and a Kohl's and a bunch of other places, and this poem is as vivid as any of those things, perhaps more because it does speak to something that is 200 years old, yet it leaps with the voice, it leaps off of the page. This is a London summer morning. Who has not waked to list the busy sounds of summer's morning in the sultry smoke of noisy London? On the pavement hot the sooty chimney boy, with dingy face and tattered covering, shrilly hawks his trade, rousing the sleepy housemaid. 
At the door the milk pail rattles, and the tinkling bell proclaims the dustman's office, while the street is lost in clouds impervious. Now begins the din of hackney coaches, wagons, carts, while tin men's shops and noisy trunk makers, knife grinders, coopers, squealing cork cutters, fruit barrows, and the hunger-giving cries of vegetable vendors fill the air. Now every shop displays its very trade, and the fresh sprinkled pavement cools the feet of early walkers. At the private door the ruddy housemate twirls the busy mop, annoying the smart prentice or neat girl, tripping with bandbox lightly. Now the sun darts burning splendor in the glittering pane, save where the canvas awning throws a shade on the gay merchandise. Now spruce and trim in shops where beauty smiles with industry sits the smart damsel while the passenger peeps through the window watching every charm. Now pastry dainties catch the eyes minute of hummy insects while the slimy snare waits to enthrall them. Now the lamplighter mounts the slight ladder, nimbly venturous to trim the half-filled lamps, while at his feet the potboy yells discordant. All along the sultry pavement the old clothesman cries, in tone monotonous, and sidelong views the area for his traffic. Now the bag is slyly opened, and the half-worn suit sometimes the pilfered treasure of the base domestic spoiler, for one half its worth sinks in the green abyss. The porter now bears his huge load along the burning way, and the poor poet wakes from busy dreams to paint the summer morning. Today on Poetry Friday, I wanted to share the poems that changed my life, the first poems to change my life. And I hope that listeners in the comments will leave the names of the poems that did the same for them, or the songs, or the novels, or whatever it is. Um, I had the opportunity today to drive back to the town where I was a teenager and it struck me again and again uh, going through this place, especially the downtown area, which is still seems to be the brick buildings from the 1920s or so, still with a four-way intersection that basically still serves as a town center with, uh, with the small clock tower telling you the time. Um, it struck me again and again there to wonder where the interest for poetry came with me. Uh, as I've tried to put it, thinking about it, on the one hand, I had access to Jerry Springer and MTV, but 
Elsewhere, it was this small town, this rural Ohio town along Lake Erie. Um, and none of it really uh, was alienating to me enough to push me into poetry. I'm sure that I had some of the teenage tendencies of being, uh, I know I did, of being depressed and alienated, but I don't think those were the things that pushed me into poetry or towards poetry. Maybe they pushed me very early on towards reading Stephen King or something like that. Uh, but poetry was something else. Uh, before uh, I got into T.S. Eliot, and that's what I'm going to read today, I had read a bit of Dante and I had been enamored with Shakespeare, but both of those were kind of old influences, old voices. I knew they were venerated, but it didn't sound like anything that I would say or really anything that I would see or experience. And it wasn't until I came across T.S. Eliot in the senior year, my senior year of high school, and then uh, over the my freshman year in college, rereading him again. And finally, I think in the spring of my freshman year of college, just getting a separate copy of Four Quartets, his poem, T.S. Eliot's poem, Four Quartets on its own. That is what solidified that poem for me as something that I could lean on, return to, and never stop getting sustenance from. But at the same time, it's just remarkable to me that uh, driving through this rural town, um, that there was something in me that made me turn quite literally down a different road, something that made me find this passage, for instance, in the first poem in Four Quartets, and it, at the age of 17, uh, just read this and knew from the beginning, this is something different. This is something I want to do. These are words that I never want to stop saying. Listen to this. Footfalls echo in the memory, down the passage which we did not take, towards the door we never opened, into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind. But to what purpose, disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. Other echoes inhabit the garden. Shall we follow? Quick, said the bird, find them, find them around the corner, through the first gate, into our first world. Shall we follow the deception of the thrush into our first world? There they were, dignified, invisible, moving without pressure, over the dead leaves, in the autumn heat, through the vibrant air, and the bird called, in response to the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery, and the unseen eye-beam crossed, for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. There they were as our guests, accepted and accepting. So we moved, and they, in a formal pattern, along the empty alley, into the box circle, to look down into the drained pool. Dry the pool, dry concrete, brown-edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight, and the lotus rose quietly, quietly, 
the surface glittered out of heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. Now, it strikes me reading that, that what we're talking about is memory. What we're talking about is nostalgia. What we're talking about is our first world. I think Eliot himself says that basically all of his poetry and perhaps even uh, all of the creativity and the greatest thoughts that human beings have uh, somehow originate in experiences that we have in the first 12 years of our life. And I think that previously my way of dealing with the experiences that I had in the first 12 years of my life, which culminated in moving from the city I was born in to the city that I grew up in, my way of dealing with that was, uh, as I've mentioned, through movies like The Sandlot, where you associate nostalgia with sports and childhood and baseball and girls and all of that stuff. And that is something to reach on to and hold on to as well. And I think what attracted me here was that it had nothing to do with any of those things. But I knew, I already had an inkling, uh, a small inkling of Eliot's biography, born in America in 1888, died in London in 1965, winning the Nobel Prize in 1948, and... Uh, everything that happens in between that, how someone grows up in America and becomes a poet. Uh, how the hell do you do that? Why do you do that? Let alone in the 20th century, the century that uh, I myself was born in. Um, I started to feel a connection to something like that. And I think that's one answer to it. The other is that religion has always been immensely important to me. I grew up a Catholic, a Roman Catholic. I was an altar server for many years, and it was only those experiences and the seriousness with which I was uh, suggested that I should take all of these rituals and prayers and practices and holidays and family gatherings. It was only those things that led me in the year 2020 to convert to Judaism. So religion has always been a huge part of my life. And I always quote that line from Yeats, W.B. Yeats in the early 1890s, when he's in his early 20s or so, and he's first getting involved in poetry and in Irish, uh, and in Irish politics as well. And someone is chiding him and sort of mocking him for also having an interest in the occult, in what we would nowadays call uh, the New Age, the, the, uh, the Order of the Golden Dawn and Madame Blavatsky and all of that stuff. And what Yeats said is basically what I would say about religion too, is that um, without religion, uh, without the study of it and the experience of it, without praying every day, and nowadays without consciously knowing 
that my daughter is watching me pray every day. Um, without that, there wouldn't be a need for poetry. There wouldn't be poetry at all in my life. And so uh, this next section from Four Quartets, from the poem there called East Coker, brings the religious element into it. But it also brings in a, a fairly practical thing for a 17, 18-year-old or someone in their early 20s who has an affinity for powerful language, who has an affinity for nostalgia and uh, immense, intense feelings. Um, I've read this passage through all throughout my life. I'll be turning 44 this year. Um, in so many different places, in so many different settings, uh, as, a, as a way of finding some peace and finding some calm. But the image that always comes back to me here, uh, one of the most vivid experiences of reading the, these lines, is sitting in a Denny's in Mentor, Ohio, around one in the morning, and feeling both in the sense that I'm glad that my friends have gone home and I'm sitting here by myself, but also that the restaurant is full with people my age and I'm sitting at the counter by myself and this is what I'm doing. And I don't really know why I'm alone in just reading poetry. But you can imagine the effect of something like this would have on the mind of a teenager. It says this, or of someone who is now in their 40s. Uh, T.S. Eliot says this, I said to my soul, be still and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. As in a theater, the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings, with a movement of darkness on darkness. And we know that the hills and the trees the distant panorama and the bold imposing facade are all being rolled away. Or as when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when under ether the mind is conscious, but conscious of nothing. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. And something that I've never quite considered here with these lines, uh, Eliot seems to think uh, of himself as perhaps being a step above the mind that's under ether, a step above the mind that has uh, the terror of nothing to think about on the train, um, or of just coming around to seeing the world as being something like daily life or whatever daily experience is for you, as just being something like the theater, uh, 
where the sets are being changed and you suddenly see that what you thought was real just isn't isn't that it's unreal it's just that it isn't everything there's something else going on there's a a low pulse or a hum going on underneath everyday life that you also need to try to put yourself in tune with and if you don't and if you are immensely sensitive to language or religion or whatever it is um, you will not be very happy you will not have a good time and that is when he comes to the conclusion that he comes to to wait without hope to wait without love um, but to have faith the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting I think that was immensely important for me to hear as someone in his late teens or early 20s who did have all of pop culture uh, ready to be absorbed uh, Jerry Springer MTV everything you could think of but wait there's something else other than that isn't there and uh, I just uh, I just consider myself immensely lucky that I found that when I did and that it has remained such a pillar for me uh, even now and here is another little section where Elliot says this if you came this way taking the route you would be likely to take from the place you would be likely to come from if you came this way in May time you would find the hedges white again in May with voluptuary sweetness it would be the same at the end of the journey if you came at night like a broken king if you came by day not knowing what you came for it would be the same when you leave the rough road and turn behind the pigsty to the dull facade and the tombstone and what you thought you came for is only a shell a husk of meaning from which the purpose breaks only when it is fulfilled if at all either you had no purpose or the purpose is beyond the end you figured and is altered in fulfillment there are other places which also are the world's end some at the sea jaws or over a dark lake in a desert or a city but this is the nearest in place and time now and in England if you came this way taking any route starting from anywhere at any time or at any season it would always be the same you would have to put off sense and notion you are not here to verify instruct yourself or inform curiosity or carry report you are here to kneel where prayer has been valid and prayer is more than an order of words the conscious occupation of the praying mind or of the sound of the voice praying and what the dead had no speech for when living they can tell you being dead the communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living here the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere never and always
And I can only guess, but knowing what I did of Eliot's biography, and knowing that what he's doing is pulling from mythology and religion, I knew that he was not a religious figure. He's not a saint. Uh, he's nobody's savior. He's nobody's uh, guru. Um, he's no wise man. I knew that he also was not anybody's idea of a hero. He's not a, a hero out of Homer. He's not Dante going through uh, the three levels of the afterlife. Um, he's not anyone doing any great outward deeds. From what I could grasp at the time, at the very end of high school, the beginning of college, um, he was someone who came from St. Louis. He was someone who went to Harvard, which had its sort of aura about it, even for me then. But still, he went to Harvard, and then he went to France. Uh, and then he got married and went to England. He worked at a bank. He tried to uh, tried his best to become a critic, and he succeeded in that very well. He tried to get his poems published. He taught for a time, uh, and then he got into publishing. Um, he is living a fairly anonymous life. If you saw him on the street and you know who he was, I, I, I doubt that you would uh, see anything special about him at all. And I think that is what makes poetry like this special to me. Um, it showed me that the elements of my own life could be used for poetry on the one hand, but also that my experiences, my thoughts, uh, the things that I aspired to do uh, could also be used for poetry, that you can have depth like this. You are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity or carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. Um, the idea that I could associate something like that with my own experience um, was incredible, and it still is. And the last thing I'll read from Four Quartets is actually the very last stanza of the poem, and it includes those wonderful lines that many of us have heard um, that's, that have just become touchstones uh, for my life, for uh, my wife and I together, and now my daughter. Um, these are the kinds of things that uh, this is the reason people used to memorize poetry. You want to be in a situation, and you want to be able to call up lines like these. And um, this is what it says. And again, I will say to anyone out there uh, in the comments, uh, leave a note about your equivalent of this. Um, what are the things that changed your life at just the right time? Because it always does seem to be at just the right time. This is how T.S. Eliot ends uh, four quartets. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now,
always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Today on Poetry Friday, you may be able to hear the birds still chirping, still singing outside of where I am recording this right now. And I guess that's appropriate because in mythology, I love those instances where birds are considered to be, if not the souls of the dead, perhaps messengers of them come to give us hints or tell us things. And what I wanted to do today is to share three poems uh, by contemporary poets dealing with mythology, that great subject of mine. And how the hell do you choose only three poems from the last hundred years that deal with mythology? Well, it happens that the Irish are very good at, uh, at doing this. And uh, two of the poems that I will read are from Irish poets. The first comes from that amazing Irish poet, Avon Boland. She lived from 1944 until 2020. And she had so many great poems about being a mother, so many great poems about being a woman, and so many great poems about mythology itself that uh, it wasn't very hard to find one poem where she sort of combined all of that. This is her incredible poem called The Making of an Irish Goddess. Now she usually, uh, in many other poems, she spends a lot of time with the story from Greek myth of Demeter and Persephone. This is where Persephone is kidnapped and taken down into the underworld. And her mother, Demeter, uh, roves over the world looking for her missing daughter. And because her presence is what allows the seasons to change when she realizes her daughter is missing and she goes around in mourning. Um, basically, the, the world is beginning to die and it is the finding of her daughter in the underworld and the sort of bargain they make about how often she can spend in the upper world and the underworld each year. Uh, that is what allows the seasons to continue. But here, in this poem, she just uses the, uh, the Roman name for Demeter, which is Ceres, C-E-R-E-S. And look at how she deals with this poem about a mother of a young daughter who is growing up, a mother of a daughter who is perhaps will be facing dangers in her life. Look at how she takes this and puts this in her own lifetime in her own life with her own daughter uh, in Ireland. This is incredible. The Making of an Irish Goddess by Avon Boland. It says, Ceres went to hell with no sense of time. When she looked back, all that she could see was the arteries of silver in the rock, 
the diligence of rivers, always at one level, wheat at one height, leaves of a single color, the same distance in the usual light, a seasonless, unscarred earth. But I need time, my flesh and that history, to make the same descent. In my body, neither young now nor fertile, and with the marks of childbirth still on it, in my gestures, the way I pin my hair to hide the stitched, healed blemish of a scar, must be an accurate inscription of that agony, the failed harvests, the fields rotting to the horizon, the children devoured by their mothers whose souls, they would have said, went straight to hell, followed by their own. There is no other way. Myth is the wound we leave in the time we have, which in my case is this March evening at the foothills of the Dublin mountains, across which the lights have changed all day, holding up my hand, sickle-shaped, to my eyes, to pick out my own daughter from all the other children in the distance, her back turned towards me. That's uh, an incredible poem to me. Uh, myth is the wound we leave in the time we have. I would also say, perhaps, that uh, myth is the healed scar we leave in the time we have as well. Myth is also a bit of healing, if you are lucky enough, if you allow it to be. The next poem comes from, uh, I believe, a good friend of Seamus Heaney's. This is Michael Longley, who was born in 1939, and thankfully he is still here kicking around. And this is the poem that he wrote uh, about the Odyssey. So on the one, on the one hand, you have Avon Boland uh, not quite retelling the story of Demeter and Persephone, directly and just uh, assuming you know about it and she makes it uh, into an aspect of her own life. This is Michael Longley retelling or really making his own uh, the very last, uh, one of the very last scenes in Homer's Odyssey. When Odysseus has returned, um, he has uh, beaten all the suitors at the archery game and now it is time to clear the house and murder all of the suitors. And I can't think, um, not even a translation of Homer, I can't think of uh, any poem in the last hundred years that uh, deals so directly as a retelling of a scene, especially from something as hallowed as Homer, that is so powerful as what Michael Longley does with this. This is his poem called The Butchers. And it says this, when he had made sure there were no survivors in his house and that all the suitors were dead, heaped in blood and dust like fish that fishermen with fine meshed nets have hauled up gasping for salt water, evaporating in the sunshine. Odysseus, spattered with muck and like a lion dripping blood from his chest and cheeks after devouring a farmer's bullock, ordered the disloyal housemaids to sponge down the armchairs and tables, 
while Telemachus, the ox herd and the swine herd, scraped the floor with shovels, and then between the portico and the round house, stretched a hawser and hanged the women, so none touched the ground with her toes, like long-winged thrushes or doves trapped in a mist net across the thicket where they roost, their heads bobbing in a row, their feet twitching but not for long, and when they had dragged Melanthius's corpse into the haggard and cut off his nose and ears and cock and balls, they dogs dinner. Odysseus, seeing the need for whitewash and disinfectant, fumigated the house and the outhouses, so that Hermes, like a clergyman, might wave the supernatural baton with which he resurrects or hypnotizes those he chooses, and waken the round up of the suitors' souls and the housemaids, like bats gibbering in the nooks of their mysterious cave, when out of the clusters that dangle from the rocky ceiling, one of them drops and squeaks, so their souls were bat squeaks, as they flittered after Hermes, their deliverer, who led them along the clammy shoes, then past the oceanic streams and the white rock, the sun's gatepost in that dreamy region, until they came to a bog meadow full of bog asphodels, where the residents are ghosts or images of the dead. And usually you can tell from modern takes on myth that it is a modern take on myth. Uh, reading that, aside from a few phrases here and there, um, I wouldn't have been surprised to have discovered that this was actually a translation from the Greek. It sounds uh, that ancient. Um, even the idea he cut off his nose and ears and cock and balls at dog's dinner, uh, that still sounds like something that Homer might have said. But it also, since it is a 20th century poem, it brings to mind uh, the, uh, the women whose heads were shaved after Paris was liberated, after France was liberated, and the women who were tarred and feathered for sleeping with Nazis. Um, you think of Seamus Heaney's poem um, about uh, the, the female victims of the strife in Northern Ireland, the women who have, quote, slept with the enemy, or just of political revenge at all in the 20th century. Um, how many people have been hanged from light poles and such. Um, this is maybe the one case where it is definitely a modern poem. I guess in Homer, you're sort of, uh, you've dealt with this for 24 books and you're ready for everyone to get their revenge. If in Longley's case, all you have is this one scene, maybe you sort of hold your breath and you don't quite want all the butchery to go on, but it does. And um, a great uh, a great channeling Michael Longley does of Homeric violence sounds like something out of the Iliad, or maybe even just in the details, um, or just the ease of blood and uh, of blood and guts, something out of even the book of Leviticus.
and but either way it is it is that ancient world view this last poem that i will read is by the american poet robert pinsky who was also still around and he was born in 1940 and this is his poem called the figured wheel we had uh, first avon bolin taking her own life and filtering it through myth we have michael longley just retelling it straight whatever the story of myth is this one is one of the best instances i know of a new myth or of just somebody trying to take on the sort of prophetic stance. This is Robert Pinsky's poem, The Figured Wheel, and I hope these three poems are something that will carry you into the weekend on sort of a high, because these are, are fine poems. This is Robert Pinsky, The Figured Wheel. The Figured Wheel rolls through shopping malls and prisons over farms small and immense in the rotten little downtowns covered with symbols it mills everything alive and grinds the remains of the dead in the cemeteries in unmarked graves and oceans sluiced by salt water and fresh by pure and contaminated rivers by snow and sand it separates and recombines all droplets and grains even the infinite subatomic particles crushed under the illustrated varying treads of its wide circumferential track spraying flecks of tar and molten rock it rumbles through the antarctic station of american sailors and technicians and shakes the floors and windows of whorehouses for diggers and smelters from Bethany, Pennsylvania, to a practically nameless, semi-penal new town. In the mineral-rich tundra of the Soviet northernmost settlements, artists illuminated with pictures and incised mottos taken from the 10,000 stories and the register of true dramas. They hang it with colored ribbons and with bells of many pitches. With paints and chisels and moving lights, they record on its rotating surface the elegant and terrifying doings of the inhabitants of the hundred pantheons of major gods disposed in iconographic stations at the hub, spoke and concentric bands. And also the grotesque demigods, Hopi gargoyles and Ibo dryads. They cover it with wind chimes and electronic instruments that vibrate as it rolls to make an all but unthinkable music so that the wheel hums and rings as it turns through the births of stars and through the dead world of bomb fire blast and fallout where only a few doomed races of insects fumble in the smoking grasses it is jesus oblivious to hurt turning to give words to the unrighteous, and it is also Gogol's feeding pig that without knowing it eats a baby chick and goes on feeding. It is the empty armor of my Sid clattering into the arrows of the credulous unbelievers, a metal suit like the lost astronaut revolving with his useless umbilicus through the cold streams 
neither energy nor matter, that agitate the cold, cyclical dark, turning and returning. Even in the scorched and frozen world of the dead after the Holocaust, the wheel, as it turns, goes on, accreting ornaments. Scientists and artists festoon it from the grave with brilliant toys and messages, jokes and zodiacs, tragedies conceived from among the dreams of the unemployed and the pampered, the listless and the tortured. It is hung with devices by dead masters who have survived by reducing themselves magically to tiny organisms, to wisps of matter, crumbs of soil, bits of dry skin, microscopic flakes, which is why they are called great. In their humility that goes on celebrating the turning of the wheel as it rolls unrelentingly over. A cow plodding through car traffic on a street in La Salle, and over the haunts of Robert Pinsky's mother and father and wife and children and his sweet self, which he hereby unwillingly and inexpertly gives up, because it is there, figured and prefigured, in the nothing transfiguring wheel. If William Blake is known at all these days in the popular imagination, it is in those phrases of his and those very quotable statements that most people don't know come from Blake at all, such as, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite, or to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wildflower Hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. Or perhaps my favorite, I must create a system, or be enslaved by another man's. I will not reason and compare. My business is to create. Now, William Blake lived from 1757 until 1827. And I had a, uh, a strange thought rereading his poetry over the last few weeks. If you compare William Wordsworth to Chaucer, and if you compare William Blake to William Langland to Piers Plowman, I think you have a pretty good match there. Uh, Chaucer and Wordsworth are both sort of easygoing and easy to get into. They're fun to read in the best sense. They bring great enjoyment, and there is great beauty in what they write. Um, William Langland, Piers Plowman, and the huge visionary books of William Blake. Uh, Piers Plowman is also a visionary book in its own way, um, are very hard to get into. And it wouldn't surprise me if Blake goes the way of Piers Plowman, or if he, has, or if he hasn't already. I can't think of, I can think of hardly anybody, any poet that I've known over the last 20, 25 years who has pointed to one of the long poems of Blake and said, read this, or have you read this by Blake? 
Usually it's the songs of experience, songs of innocence, the short poems that make up that early collection of his, or it's the illustrations, or it's the quotations like the ones I just uh, mentioned. And it's very hard without a good guide, a good reference guide, to get into the longer poems of Blake. From what I can tell, at least the one that I would like to try to get into more is the one called Milton, and maybe see if I can work my way out from that. But one way to get into Blake, as I found going through my favorite passages of his, is to go and look at the poetry that he has written about animals. Now his famous poem is probably his most famous poem about an animal is the one that was featured, I think being read by Matthew McConaughey in the uh, car commercial. Uh, it's made it that far into the language, hasn't it? Um, let's see if I can find it here. And that is the one that is about the tiger. Let's just read that. This is called The Tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnaces was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp? dare its deadly terrors clasp. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? And I had a funny thing happen about 10, 12 years ago. A friend of mine, when I was living in New York, asked, who was a musician, who was really into metal, uh, asked if I had the poems of William Blake because he wanted to read them. And he had come across a website that said, uh, where you're given the quiz, is this a death metal lyric or is this William Blake? Which is funny enough on its own. But um, I let him borrow the book and he gave it back to me pretty quickly because I don't think he got as far as the, uh, as the Songs of Innocence and the Songs of Experience. But what if we move on to Blake's visionary books, which run to about 100 pages or more apiece? What kind of uh, brief little snatches about animals can we find there? And this is something that I really love. This comes from the visions of the daughters of Albion, and it says this. With what sense is it that the chicken shuns the ravenous hawk? With what sense does the tame pigeon measure out the expanse? With what sense does the bee form cells? Have not the mouse and frog eyes and ears and sense of touch? Yet are their habitations and their pursuits as different as their forms and as, as their joys? Ask the wild ass why he refuses burdens, and the meek camel why he loves man. 
Is it because of eye, ear, mouth, or skin, or breathing nostrils? No, for these the wolf and tiger have. Ask the blind worm the secrets of the grave, and why her spires love to curl round the bones of death. And ask the ravenous snake where she gets poison, and the winged eagle why he loves the sun. And then tell me the thoughts of man that have been hid of old. Then tell me the thoughts of man that have been hid of old. And to me that's remarkable, but it is buried um, in the middle of a very long poem that you need a reference work these days to, uh, to get through. Now, if we look a little later on in his life, um, William Blake, of course, being the, the patron saint of self-publishers and self-illustrators, um, there's nothing quite like what he was able to do, um, both with, the, with uh, the visual arts and with poetry. This is another piece of his. This is from the first book of Milton, the poem I mentioned before. He says, Timbrels and violins sport round the wine presses. The little seed, the sportive root, the earthworm, the gold beetle, the wise emmet. Dance round the wine presses of Luva. The centipede is there. The ground spider with many eyes the mole clothed in velvet, the ambitious spider in his sullen web, the lucky golden spinner, the earwig armed, the tender maggot emblem of immortality, the flea, louse, bug, the tapeworm, all the armies of disease, visible or invisible, to the slothful vegetating man the slow slug, the grasshopper that sings and laughs and drinks. Winter comes, he folds his slender bones without a murmur. The cruel scorpion is there, the gnat, wasp, hornet, and the honeybee, the toad and venomous newt, the serpent clothed in gems and gold. They throw off their gorgeous raiment, they rejoice with loud jubilee around the wine presses of Luva, naked and drunk with wine. And that's incredible too. Did you ever hear from anybody, uh, any of your teachers or any fellow poets or any fellow readers? You know, William Blake writes a good poem about insects and animals. I never have, but that is a wonderful uh, 10 or 15 lines or so. And of course, you heard the mention of Luva twice in that, and that is why you need the, uh, the reference work. I think the one that I have is called a Blake Dictionary. And let's look at one more. And while I find it, I should mention the memories that I have of Blake are of trying to start him and of never quite uh, being able to do so. Um, the memory I have is that his complete poetry in prose, edited by David Erdman, um, I remember that name because it's one of the first books of complete poetry by anybody that I ever bought, 
Uh, it was one of the first times I realized there were such things for poets. Uh, freshman year in college, I just discovered this website called Amazon where you could buy basically any book that you wanted. And for years and years, I had uh, Blake just sitting there. Um, how do you get into this guy? Um, and I really could not find my way in. And I really don't know why I bought him in the first place that early in my life. I was too young for it. I had no idea quite what to do. Um, and it wasn't until, let's see, uh, 2018, yeah, 2018, when um, between July and December, when I finally started to just try and plow through him and see what I could find. And this last bit here is also from Milton. This is from the second book of Milton. And this is another of my favorites of his. And I'll leave it here for today. It's just a little sampling of a bit of Blake that most people uh, don't know that he's really even capable of. And here we are. He says, Thou hearest the nightingale begin the song of spring, the lark sitting upon his earthly bed. Just as the morn appears, listens silent, then springing from the waving cornfield, loud he leads the choir of the day, trill, 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 mounting upon the wings of light into the great expanse, re-echoing against the lovely blue and shining heavenly shell. His little throat labors with inspiration. Every feather on throat and breast and wings vibrates with the effluence divine. All nature listens silent to him, and the awful sun stands still upon the mountain, looking on this little bird, with eyes of soft humility and wonder, love, and awe. Then, loud from their green covert, all the birds begin their song, the thrush, the linnet, and the goldfinch, robin and the wren, awake the sun from his sweet reverie upon the mountain. The nightingale again essays his songs, and through the day, and through the night, warbles luxuriant. Every bird of song, attending his loud harmony with admiration and love. This is a vision of the lamentation of Beulah over Ololan. Thou perceivest the flowers put forth their precious odors, and none can tell how from so small a center come such sweets, forgetting that within the center eternity expands. It is ever during doors that Og and Anak fiercely guard. First ever the morning breaks, joy opens in the flowery bosoms, joy even to tears, which the sun rising dries. First the wild thyme and meadowsweet, downy and soft, waving among the reeds, light springing on the air, lead the sweet dance. They wake the honeysuckle sleeping on the oak. The flaunting beauty revels along the wind. The white thorn, lovely May, opens her many lovely eyes, listening to the roses, still sleeps. None dare to wake her. Soon she bursts her crimson-curtained bed and comes forth in majesty of beauty. Every flower, the pink, the jessamine, the wallflower, the carnation, the jonquil, the mild lily, opes her heavens. Every tree, 
and flower and herb soon fill the air with an innumerable dance yet all in order sweet and lovely men are sick with love such is a vision of the lamentation of beulah over alolan any comments or suggestions for readings i should make in future episodes can be emailed to human voices wake us the number one at gmail.com links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description if you enjoy human voices wake us you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts the music here is duke ellington's arabesque cookie